I was sitting in the uh, the kitchenette of the legal office waiting, and Maury walked in, sat down, slammed his ha- hand on the table, and says, "Do you believe in the power of the law to make a positive difference in people's lives?" And I said, "Well, yes, you know, of course, of course, I do." And he slams his hand on the the table again and says, well, then you belong here with us and gave me this powerful pitch about how we were going to do great things and change the world. So I took the job. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Eric Schnurrer, a former chief of staff to the governor of Pennsylvania and advisor to high-level politicians all around the country. He's founder and head of a company called Public Works LLC, through which he's been helping state governors and others with public policy and budget issues for many years. Eric sold his company to give himself a chance to focus on new things like the Greater Good Initiative and his writing and speaking career, but the buyer reneged on the deal. After winning the lawsuit but failing to collect on the judgment, Eric needed to rebuild his moribund company from scratch during the pandemic. He has also recently written a big piece about the technological challenges to democracy around the world in the current moment. So we had a lot to talk about. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Eric Schnurrer of Public Works. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Eric, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? My name is Eric Schnurr. I am currently the president of Public Works LLC, which is a consulting firm that works with um, mostly state and local governments, some federal officials all around the country on public policy. I grew up in California, went to Brown University as an undergrad, got a uh, uh, master's in public policy from the Kennedy School at Harvard, then went to Columbia Law School, practiced law a bit, and I've spent the last 30 years basically doing public policy as a consultant. That's a pretty good career, it sounds like. I'd like to just go into a little bit of detail about that background. I feel like it really helps to know the person a little bit before you talk about some of the current work. How was Brown for you? What was that experience like? Well, I loved Brown, which I think is true of virtually everybody who goes to Brown. It was somewhat accidental that I wound up going there. I had always presumed, somewhat presumptuously, I suppose, although it was easier to get in in those days, that I would go to Harvard or Yale. And I went back east. As I said, I grew up in California. I went east to go on a college tour to look at Harvard, Princeton, and Yale. And my my parents insisted I had to look at two smaller 
schools because they were worried that I uh, wouldn't get into where I was setting my sights. My mother's childhood best friend who lived in New York City, I was going to stay at their place in New York and she was going to take me up to New England um, because her son was currently at, at Brown. Her son, Seth Berkeley, has become one of the, the leading international advocates for, for vaccines since uh, long before COVID and has become quite prominent as a result of that. And he delivered the baccalaureate address at the Brown commencement this year, which was quite an honor. We agreed to stop by Brown to see Seth, and I fell in love with the place. I had absolutely zero intention of applying there until, uh, until I went there and uh, loved it and continue to love it until the day I graduated and you know, long since. I think everybody who goes to Brown really enjoys it. Th- that kind of assumption of an Ivy League school, were your parents very educated? What kind of family? Well, they were both very educated, but in different ways, I'd say. My my father had gone to college and had a law degree. My mother came from a very poor immigrant family. She was the first one born in the United States. They escaped from the Russian Revolution and came here with nothing. Her father died when she was four. They were so poor as a child that they had to give their dog away. She started at Brooklyn College, but after a year, her mother died. And so she had to drop out of college and support herself. And so she never completed more than a year of college. That's quite different, the two parents. They were good compliments for each other? Yes. I mean, I don't know that I've ever known a couple that were more in love with each other. They, they provided a good example for us growing up. Yeah. Why go get an MPP? What was the pull to a master's in public policy? I'd been interested in politics since I was a kid. My, my parents were politically involved my entire life. I was interested in, in government and politics not for the sport of it per se, but because I was brought up to believe that it was a way to make a difference and to contribute to the lives of others, which I was also taught you have an obligation to do. And the substantive side of it, the policy side of it is what really always interested me. In what way was it valuable? There was an annual talent show at the Kennedy School um, where I wrote a song one year that had the line in it, I don't know how I'll get a job because it seems to me you can't even wipe your, I won't say it on a family podcast, with an MPP. Oh, my classmates loved the line, which I I think was the the general concern at the time. How has it been helpful to me since then? I mean, actually, in a couple of ways that as a student, I don't know that one fully appreciates the education. I I did learn some things there that uh, I think about more now than I did when I was young. I think just the value of of analysis, uh, of thinking about things rigorously is something that I didn't fully appreciate both as an undergrad and as a grad student that I think about a lot now. Some of the analytic techniques, I'm not a particularly quantitative person, but the thought processes that came from learning those I have found to be useful. You know, frankly, having a public policy degree from Harvard gives you a certain imprimatur that uh, I don't know that I would have had without. Yeah. A lot of people I know who did that program also went on to law school. I mean, there's a real, obviously, big nexus between the law and public policy. What was your thinking? I actually probably had a longer term interest in being a lawyer than 
than doing anything in public policy per se. When I was a, a kid, you know, lawyers were changing the world. In the 60s, all the, the major court decisions that, of course, are now being swept away that created what we think of as, as civil rights and the rights that most Americans enjoy today really come out of court decisions from the late 50s and the 60s and that more or less ended by the early 70s. But at that time, one could really believe that you could make a difference in the law that would really change people's lives for the better. My parents were both involved in the civil rights movement. We lived in Arizona prior to moving to California. We moved to California when I was 11. So I lived most of the 60s in, in Phoenix. And this was the, the heyday of Barry Goldwater. Arizona has, has changed, particularly Phoenix, has changed a lot over the years. So, you know, there wasn't much of a civil rights movement, I don't think, in Phoenix in the 60s. But what there was of one met in our living room. And I grew up around that and grew up thinking that this was a something that I should do with my life and where you, you could really make a difference. So I, I really intended to go to law school from a fairly young age. Did you like it? Did you like the study of the law? Yes, I loved it, actually. Loved it. What about it? Well, to quote Robert Bork in an infamous line, it was an intellectual feast. To me, law is really uh, applied philosophy. You know, it's thinking deeply about the way that things should be in a context that involves real people, real issues, real concerns, things that will affect people's lives, and working through, when properly done, what is the right answer for this particular dispute, but also what does that mean for the rules that we're setting for our society as a whole? I mean, you've sort of referred obliquely to the big change in judicial philosophy, decisions of the 60s, the Warren Court decisions and further being swept away over the time since. How do you view that sort of amazing pliability of the law in certain regards? The pliability, as you put it, is obviously a big issue now because there's quite a dispute, regardless of what one thinks of the substance one way or another, um, about stare decisis and precedent and to what extent should that be observed. I don't know that I want to wade into those waters particularly, but I think about this a lot. I still write every now and then about constitutional issues. I mean, my, my field in law was constitutional law and civil rights work. So I've, I've studied the Constitution a lot and I've thought about it a lot. There's this general division in people's thought that it's become starker you know, in the last couple of years, but particularly since the Dobbs decision, that's generally characterized as there are uh, originalists and then there are all those liberals who think the Constitution should just change with the times. And you see, to me, I don't see that division. I think of myself as an originalist, which, you know, as a uh, liberal or a progressive, you're supposed to abhor. But I think that's that's wrong. The Constitution, first of all, is a you know, essentially a contract that was drawn up at a particular time by particular individuals and signed on to. It has a mechanism for, for change. And the mechanism for change is not, heck, 
we don't like it, whether we as the country as a whole or it's a majority of nine justices, there are mechanisms to amend the Constitution. And we can do so. And until we do so, the Constitution, I think, like any document, should be interpreted to mean what the people who wrote it and adopted it meant it to mean. Otherwise, I think it's incoherent. Otherwise, I don't think it's a Constitution. But that said, the notion that the Constitution locks you into a a bunch of social structures, let alone an economy or technology that existed in 1789 and nothing since then is is clearly ridiculous. You know, when when wire communication were invented and the Supreme Court had to decide whether or not the uh, Fourth Amendment rules around search and seizure apply to wiretaps, you know, they didn't say, and we wouldn't expect them to say, well, gee, the framers didn't know anything about electricity other than arguably Benjamin Franklin. So we can't decide this. You take the principles and decide them and apply them to new factual settings. And the Supreme Court has said the same thing in the context of firearms, whether you like it or not. You know, they said, look, uh, we can apply the Second Amendment whether they do so properly or not is another question. We can apply the Second Amendment to assault weapons that didn't exist at the time of the framing because you can apply the general principles. What I think is generally overlooked is that is two things. There are there are some things in the, you know, let's call it the 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 pre-amendment constitution, the original constitution, that are fairly specific, like the president has to be 35 years old. Um, I don't think 35 is open to a lot of interpretation. Although if you're a creative lawyer, you can make arguments that, well, 35 doesn't mean 35. But I think we all know that 35 years old is a requirement that's in the Constitution. If you want to change that, you've got to amend it. But for the most part, while it's prescriptive in a lot of ways, it's general in a lot of ways. And there's a a famous quote from Chief Justice Marshall. He says in this one early case that the, um, the Constitution does not speak with the prolixity of a legal code. It is a constitution we are expounding, which is meant to endure for all ages. And by that, he meant it's not like the Napoleonic Code. And it's not it's essentially a common law document, not a Napoleonic system kind of document where everything is spelled out precisely. And that's it. We we interpret it. And the Constitution was written to be somewhat flexible with clauses like the necessary and proper clause, which, of course, is totally unspecific. But you get into the the Bill of Rights and particularly into the 14th Amendment, which was enacted in the wake of the Civil War. And there you get, you know, what are sometimes referred to as the great clauses of the Constitution that are really very, very general phrases, particularly the Equal Protection Clause, the Privileges and Immunities Clause, which is largely ignored, and even the Due Process Clause. Now, what do those things mean? That They, they aren't precise. They lay out principles. And I think particularly the Equal Protection Clause is an important thing to think about and to illustrate the the, the difference between a specific intent that the framers might have had and a more general intent. About 10, 15 years after the 14th Amendment was adopted, there's a case that comes to the Supreme Court called Yikwo versus Hopkins, which is kind of overlooked, but in my mind, one of the single most important cases the Supreme Court ever decided. Yikwo operated a Chinese laundry in San Francisco, and there was a great deal of discrimination against the Chinese in California at the time, Yik Wo essentially had his business shut down by a discriminatory anti-Chinese law that was enacted in California. This case went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the question was essentially, does the Equal Protection Clause apply to Chinese people or only 
African-American freed slaves. And the Supreme Court basically said, well, you know, equal protection says equal protection. It doesn't it doesn't apply to a specific race. We we apply this to all Americans. And that was not apparent to some people. And it's not apparent to some people today. Justice Scalia made a big point of arguing that the equal protection clause obviously didn't apply to women and sexual discrimination, because that's not what the framers were thinking when they adopted it after the Civil War. And in a sense, he's correct. That's not what they were thinking. They also were not thinking about school desegregation. They arguably were not thinking about social discrimination at all, but simply purely wrote legal discrimination of a type that was fairly narrow. But we've taken the principle and, you know, it's somewhat like the old phrase, don't, don't do as I do, do as I say. Our actions and our, our, our principles have larger a- applications than what we may think immediately. And what equal protection means um, doesn't necessarily change with the times, but it's a broader principle than just we want to make sure that the recently freed slaves are not discriminated against. And that principle has been applied broadly to create essentially the America that we know today and that most people really, really value. And, you know, I think originalism in its proper meaning has to be looked at as what were the values that the framers held and what would be the implications of that rather than just would they have said it this way in 1878 or not. To me, the dichotomy between originalism and uh, you know some sort of free fro- free floating constitutional nowism is is a false dichotomy. But uh, you know, I think that's that's something that we need to resolve as a society, and obviously have not. So that was a longer answer to your question than I think you bargained on. But I but exactly what I like to provoke, and I appreciate understanding you better by having a chance to hear you talk about something like that. Tell me about your career as it starts. You've come out of three good schools with three great degrees. Tell me about like your entry into the workforce after that. I took a judicial clerkship as you know, one often does after law school. Probably the biggest effect that that had on my life was it, it took me to Philadelphia. You more or less go where you're chosen. I was chosen by a very good judge on the, the Third Circuit, um, the U.S. Court of Appeals based out of out of Philly. So I, I moved to Philadelphia, um, had been here twice for a day before that. I had no prior association with with Philadelphia, but I really I really liked it a lot. I lived in in Center City, three, four blocks from the federal courthouse. Um, our the the windows of our Chambers looked down on Independence Hall and the uh, the Liberty Bell, which to me, if you're you're writing federal court opinions on constitutional law, was was inspiring and kind of nifty. So you know, I liked that. Our judge had essentially decided to retire from the bench sometime. I think after we were selected as clerks, we were picked in the second year of of law school. By the time I reported for duty, rumors were were swirling that he was preparing to leave the bench. Turned out to be true. He returned to practicing law, I think, in December of that year. I started in July. So I had kind of a, a half year of clerkship and then unexpectedly had to go look for a job right away. I think the judge expected that all three of us were going to come with him and work at his law firm, which I don't think was a, a realistic expectation. He was a, a Republican appointee. He had been very, very close to Richard Nixon. He had expected Nixon to put him on the Supreme Court, which he almost did, but uh, wound up not doing. What was this judge's name? Arlen Adams. 
very esteemed judge in the the Third Circuit. He was actually uh, twice reported by the media to have been, you know, about to be named by the president once by Nixon, once by Ford to the Supreme Court. In both cases, the president changed uh, the presidents changed their minds at the last moment. Adams was a, a pretty well known judge, widely viewed as a, a feeder judge. The the group of clerks before me, when I had interviewed for the clerkship, included David Cole, who's now the head of the American Civil Liberties Union. A couple of major law professors came out of those chambers. Adams, despite his kind of center-right politics, personally had a history of choosing very liberal clerks. I was probably by far the most conservative of the three clerks that he chose that year. So the the notion that any of us wanted to go work for a big law firm, I think, was kind of misplaced on his part. One of my clerks went off and, uh, you know, essentially became an academic. One uh, went to work for a labor side uh, labor firm. And, you know, I did what I did. But um, as a courtesy to the judge, we went and interviewed with the law firm. Apparently, my disinterest in ever working for a law firm was so apparent that the the managing partner at the law firm kind of liked it. He called me back a couple of weeks later and said that there was an opening with one of the suburban legal aid societies, but that he didn't think I should take the job, uh, that I should hold out for something better. And he'd call me back with something better, which I kind of thought was nice of him, but I was never going to hear from him again. He, he called me back a couple of weeks later and said to me, would you like to write the Supreme Court briefs for the ACLU? I said, sure, that's a nice thing to aspire to someday. Then he said, okay, great, you're hired. He was on the board of the ACLU, the national ACLU. They were in a transition at that time and basically had lost all of their national legal staff. They were hiring a new legal director, national legal director, after like 10 years of the job being vacant. They basically needed to complete the Supreme Court term and needed somebody who would come in and agree to write all the Supreme Court briefs because there was nobody else around to write them and then leave no questions asked after six months. So, you know, I was six months out of law school and I got handed this job of writing eight Supreme Court briefs over the course of the next six months for the premier civil liberties organization in the country. But just pause on that for a second, because that is an amazing, uh, yeah. And, and honestly, it's the kind of stroke of luck I hear about over and over in people early on in their careers that, that are on a path to do big things. It's like, it, it, probably if it hadn't been that stroke of luck, it would have been another one, but so interesting that life happens that way. Uh, yes. Well, I, life certainly happens through a series of things you don't expect, I think. Yeah. I think it's very hard to plan out one's life. And there's a line from Shakespeare my father used to quote a lot. It comes a, a tide in all men's life, which is if taken on the flood leads on to, I forget what the rest of the quote, fame and fortune or something or other. But I think this, this image of tides that come in and out, not under your control, and it's a matter of whether you surf that tide or not is really a better indicator of what goes on in life professionally and personally than anything else. You make decisions, but the decisions come your way due to forces beyond your control. In this, in this case, was the stroke of fortune good? Was, it, was the job actually what you wanted it to be? Um, yes. I'm, I'm not sure that it led on to anything else you know, directly per se. But yes, writing Supreme Court briefs around some of the most brilliant lawyers you'd ever want to meet 
with a couple months out of law school is certainly a good experience. I learned a lot. I got to meet some 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 interesting people who have gone on to be the attorneys in some of the major cases of the last 30 years before the Supreme Court. It's you know, kind of nifty, especially that early in your career, to feel like you have some chance to influence the major legal decisions of the day. Because of what the setup was, the, the ACLU cases that term were all amicus briefs. There were no direct appeals of the ACLU. So they were kind of, you know, riding on other, on other cases. You know, it's a matter of how persuasive uh, can you be in an amicus situation? Uh, you know, it's been a long time, so I don't remember the specifics, but I do recall there was one, one case that when it came out, Justice Brennan's dissent, and Justice Brennan was kind of my hero. Brennan's dissent in the case really relied heavily on the argument that uh, we had made in the amicus brief that I wrote. So, you know, to see my argument and a lot of my words essentially showing up in Brennan's dissent was really, really rewarding. Would have been more rewarding to see it in a majority opinion, but, you know, it was, it was rewarding. What came next for you after that job ended? Um, I was recruited to go work for what, what some people might see as the polar opposite. I just moved to Philadelphia. I met uh, through a friend, a, a mutual friend who had worked on the, the campaign that fall of Bob Casey Sr., who just was just elected the governor of Pennsylvania at the time. And uh, this guy said, oh, you know, we need to get you out to Harrisburg, which to me was an appalling thought. I got asked to come out for an interview with the um, the general counsel's office, and I went for the interview. Um, uh, can't say I was blown away by Harrisburg, but I was very impressed by the man who, uh, you know, at that point was one day into his job as uh, general counsel to, to Governor Casey, a man named Maury Myers. Maury is, uh, I think, 95 or 96 now, still goes into the office every day to practice law. Really amazing guy. Uh, had gone to Mississippi as a young lawyer in 64 to work on civil rights cases. Um, uh, was from Scranton, Pennsylvania, had known Casey basically their entire lives. He became general counsel and had a vision of the general counsel's office as being more of a public advocate's office where we would find interesting, innovative cases to champion novel interpretations of constitutional law, to pursue civil rights cases, which people think of Casey as a conservative Democrat. Other than the issue of abortion, he was a, um, a JFK Democrat who had come into politics inspired by Kennedy, uh, believed very heavily in civil rights, appointed more African-Americans and women to his cabinet than all the previous you know, 60-odd governors of Pennsylvania combined. And we were going to do some crusading things in that office. And uh, I was sitting in the, uh, the kitchenette of the legal office waiting, and Maury walked in sat down, slammed his hand on the table and says, do you believe in the power of the law to make a positive difference in people's lives? And I said, well, yes, you know, of course, of course I do. <laughs> Answer a question like that. And he slams his hand on the, the table again and says, well, then you belong here with us and gave me this powerful pitch about how we were going to do great things and change the world. So I took the job. <laughs> how was that? Well, I don't know that we changed the world, but it was interesting. Yeah. How long were you working with him? Uh, I was there about two years. Yeah. What kind of things did you tackle? Well, I was kind of the constitutional law guy for the office. Um, 
we did some um, we we did some interesting amicus briefs in the U.S. Supreme Court on issues that interested me or Maury. Um, this was in the relatively early days of affirmative action, and the uh, the Supreme Court had recently struck down existing affirmative action laws as they were at the time, and the governor wanted to issue a new executive order on you know what could be done in terms of promoting diversity in governmental hiring. So I was assigned to write that. Uh, we had major legislation that came out of the legislature that um, that affected the Constitution or raised constitutional issues in one way or another, I was called in to evaluate. We had some litigation out of the office that our office got directly involved in that involved some you know novel and creative issues. There was uh, some interesting work to do there and then you know a lot of uh, uh, day-to-day in-house lawyering. What else happened between then and you starting up your firm? When I left the general counsel's office, I started my own law practice. I practiced law in Philadelphia for about four years on my own, doing uh, largely civil rights cases and a lot of uh, election-related cases. I also got hired to do some policy work for various politicians and some speech writing and so forth on the side. Then I was hired in 1993 to be the chief of staff to the lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania. Who was that? That was Mark Single. He was uh, Bob Casey's lieutenant governor. I had met Mark twice very briefly, basically didn't know him. He got he got convinced that I was the guy to get him elected governor for reasons that are almost incomprehensible. And I tried to convince him that I was not, uh, but uh, he was persistent. And I wound up taking the job as chief of staff. And then, of course, I, you know, I woke up one morning and discovered that Mark was the uh, now suddenly the governor of Pennsylvania, and I was chief of staff to the governor. I was in that job for two years until we lost in the 1994 election, and then I started the consulting business. Uh, just for clarity, what happened that the lieutenant governor <laughs> became uh, governor suddenly? Yes. yes. Um, governor Casey had a relatively rare congenital ailment called uh, amyloidosis, where the the liver excretes um, this amyloid. It's, um, I don't know, some kind of substance that that builds up on your organs internally, uh, essentially was was killing him. And at the time, there was really no known cure for it. He learned about this you know, relatively late. It's not something that you know early in life, I guess. He happened to discover an experimental surgery that had never been performed in the United States before, where you could replace your, your liver and it would stop the buildup of the amyloid and in some cases reverse it. So it was a last ditch uh, experimental surgery that could save his life. When they did the testing on him, they found that his heart had been so weakened by the amyloid that he wouldn't survive the transplant surgery unless he got a new heart. So he needed a heart and liver transplant. He announced one Friday, revealed all of this and said that he was going to have to get on the transplant list and hope for a double organ transplant. They were going to move the governor's office to the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center and basically operate out of there for you know the foreseeable future until a donor came along, which could be uh, months, if not years. I had a house in in Philadelphia at that time. So I had a you know a small place up in Harrisburg that I'd go during the week. I went back to Philadelphia for the weekend as I always did, got back up to Harrisburg very late on Sunday night. And at the crack of dawn, my phone rang. I picked it up and it was Mark, my boss. He said they had found a a donor for the governor 
was a perfect match over the weekend. Um, he was being wheeled into surgery as we were speaking. He had gotten the call at 4 a.m. that the, the governor had signed the governorship over to Mark in our state equivalent of the 26th Amendment, which has gotten a lot of discussion in recent years. We have a state analog to that where the governor could declare himself disabled, and he did so. And uh, as of 4 a.m., Mark was the uh, the governor of Pennsylvania. He told me I did you a favor and let you sleep an additional two hours, but he ended the call with, I'm governor of Pennsylvania, get into the Capitol. <laughs> and so I you know, got dressed as fast as I could, ran into the Capitol and had a... Um, a rather tumultuous ride from there on. And uh, at the at the risk of talking too long, there's a story worth telling about that. Uh, to me, was a, a lesson in the, the meaning of, of power and not being too full of oneself. We had a press conference at 10 a.m. that morning where the news you know broke to the public that the governor was undergoing the transplant surgery and that Mark was now legally governor of of Pennsylvania. We explained all the the legal and constitutional niceties. There was a lengthy briefing about the governor's medical condition. I came back to the office, and of course, this is in the early, early, early internet days. So we had office email, but you there was email virtually no place else. So when I came back to the office, there was a stack about this high of those little pink slips that if you're as old as I am, you'll remember that, that phone messages were taken on. So, you know, there was about a six inch stack by, you know, 10 a.m. of people calling. And I, I was looking through these messages as I walked back to my desk, people I hadn't heard from in years, virtually everybody I knew and people I barely knew from Pennsylvania were all calling me coincidentally on that day to say, hey, thinking of you, buddy, gee, we should be in touch. <laughs> I was suddenly, you know, perhaps the second most popular person in Pennsylvania. You know, I was leafing through the stack. Everybody wanted to talk to me because I'm suddenly chief of staff to the governor. It was a very, very, very hectic day. Went home, went to bed, got up the next morning, flipped on the radio to hear the news report on Governor Casey's medical condition. And the news was that Casey was resting comfortably, had survived the 10 hours of surgery or whatever it was. Doctors expected a full recovery. I went into the office and I didn't get a single phone call the entire day. So, you know, to me, that was a, a lesson of the uh, people who think they're so important because they hold a job that everybody wants to talk to them. You know, the job goes away someday and so do a lot of the friends. You should not be so full of yourself just because you think you're an important person. So how long was a single governor? Uh, six and a half months. Casey rather miraculously, I mean, he was the most determined man you would ever want to meet. He came back and resumed the governorship about two days before Christmas at the end of 1993. I mean, it was a moving, a moving day. People who had been his career enemies for 25 years literally wept in the aisles of the Capitol when Casey came back and gave his triumphant return speech. It was all around from the first day to the last, uh, quite an experience, quite a roller coaster ride. Sounds like it. Well, what's the founding story for Public Works LLC? Um, well, a couple of things. Mark became the Democratic nominee for governor in 1994, largely on the, the strength of his performance as the uh, acting governor over the period of 93. And um, 
we uh, we were defeated in the November election, like virtually every Democrat in the country. I had to think about what to do next, and I did not want to go back to practicing law. I uh, I, I found the practice of law unrewarding in in a lot of ways, and I loved my experience in um, in the Capitol, and particularly the period where where Mark was the governor, being able to you know really have your hands in public policy making can be a, a, a tremendously rewarding and exciting thing. And I'd, I'd worked in other governor's offices in other states before earlier in my my career in more junior capacities. And I'd take a governor's office over just about anything else in in politics or just about any other field. Essentially, every every area of human endeavor crosses your desk in the course of a day. Despite what goes on at the federal level or doesn't go on at the federal level, uh, state government is where most people's lives are, are affected directly by the decisions that are made. And there's a lot of important things that, that get done in, in those places. And the opportunity to make policy and think strategically about how to get it done is an exciting, demanding, fascinating thing. And I, I, I loved that in the job. Um, and my initial thought was, you know, how can I keep doing something like that? And Part of it was, you know, this is the end of 94, beginning of 95. It was the birth of the internet age. I read a good amount of the literature at that point about the internet and how it was going to change the world. And I guess I drank the Kool-Aid on that. I've always thought that this was a, a significant technological change. It was going to have widespread ramifications of all sorts. And most of the talk was about how this was going to change every sort of industry. Nobody really talked about government because nobody thinks of government as an industry, but I do. I think that governments face pretty much the same challenges as any other line of business with the exception that they have, a, they have the ability because of the force of law and the force of force that comes with that to hang on to their customers in ways that the average business does not. But the generally, if you're not providing a service that people want at a price that people are willing to pay for, at some point, they revolt. And particularly if they find an alternative, they seek out the alternative. You can see that with the the extent to which Americans have chosen private education over public education in many instances because they felt it wasn't delivering what they wanted and that it's led to a political movement uh, to you know, uh, undermine public education in lots of ways. One way or another, people get their get their voice. Governments, like any other industry, you know, essentially have to comply with that. It's just they generally take longer to do so because they're not under direct market conditions. But eventually governments, even undemocratic governments, but particularly in a democratic society, they, they have to yield to the overwhelming wishes of the public. So I felt that the the internet was going to bring changes to to government in the same way that it was going to bring changes to every other industry, particularly information-based industries that meant that there would be new rivals to current business models of government that would give uh, government as we know it a run for its money, so to speak. And a big part of that is territoriality. Uh, one thing that the internet has meant is that uh, you know you can get services delivered to you from anywhere to anywhere, and uh, it gives co uh, consumers a wider range of choices to you know, who they're going to use for a supplier. And I, I felt that that same logic was going to eventually apply to governments. And I think that that, that has, in fact, been borne out. Now, it's happened much more slowly and is still happening much more slowly than with other industries. 
but uh, to some degree, the territorial nation state, as it's been defined for the last 400 years, is facing serious challenges and new models for delivering government services would arise. And I wanted to be on the cutting edge of that. There's a lot more that I'm trying to do now on that. And I, I don't think that public works is quite the cutting edge of it, but it was part of the notion that uh, services that you think of as being integral to government could be jobbed out essentially and sliced off in some way and outsourced in the way that you were seeing in other industries. And that what I wanted to do, which was essentially to continue to do policymaking and strategy, you know, and more or less have what I would consider the good parts of the chief of staff's job without my having to be the chief of staff or without my having to live in any given state, but to service state governments around the country, that that would be possible because of the internet. And I think that was largely true. So that was, that was the origin of public works. Uh, so, you know, I understand that sort of general, large philosophical niche that you wanted to fill. What, as a business, who ended up being the customers and what was the business model and how did it go as an enterprise? <laughs> Those are a bunch of different questions. It's changed over time. Originally, we, we did get several governors to basically use us as a, an adjunct to their policy office. In some cases, in very small states, we essentially were the policy office. The governors did not tend to have lots of policy advisors in the smaller states. So um, we, we functioned as a uh, governor's policy office for several different governors, which to me was you know pretty uh, interesting, neat, and exciting, a chance to make a difference in a variety of ways. We did the same thing with a couple of state agencies, which resulted in some interesting work. I had a good relationship with the environmental secretary in California, who I had uh, done an internship for when I was in grad school, and we stayed in touch. He basically brought us in to help with a lot of major policy initiatives, and we wound up devising a Brownfield's cleanup law that bridged a gap between the environmental community and the business community in a way that had not been bridged before and led to the, the sunsetting of the previous California Brownfields law that was called novel and precedent setting and, um, you know, it was, uh, got a lot of good attention in the national environmental press. So, you know, that was both creative and rewarding. I feel we were making a difference on that. So we got to do things like that in a variety of states. That things really changed um, around 2002 when there was a big recession. It is dwarfed by subsequent recessions, so people don't really think about it so much. But uh, I, I think that there was a more or less one-time change in government at that time that that has continued since then. That recession really, I think, brought an end to the era of government spending as it was known before then, even through the, the Reagan era and attempts to, to constrain government spending. The 2002 recession really change the nature of how government operates. Pretty much continuously since then has been constrained by the ability to raise revenue one way or another. You rarely get tax increases. And when when the government contracts, particularly at the state level, when, when the economy contracts, you're stuck with revenue decreases and increased demand on public services that become very, very difficult to manage. So uh, we started doing comprehensive efficiency reviews of government's 
at that time and got a lot of work doing that. And that still is probably the biggest part of our work, certainly by the dollar volume, is to be brought in by state and local governments to help them figure out how to how to trim their budgets without cutting services that people want. I think in general, voters think they should pay 10% less than they do for the things that they want. Whether or not you're at the top or the bottom of the economic cycle will kind of mask the true situation and where government budgets are. In general, there's about a 10% structural budget deficit in every state and local government in the country. And at one time or another, the boat scrapes the bottom and you got to do something about that. These large-scale efficiency reviews help you to do that. So we're generally we're generally able to cut out about 5% of an operating budget on a permanent ongoing basis without cutting things that people would care about. So there's a good demand for that. And we've wound up doing a lot of that. So over time, the business has shifted to doing a lot of that sort of efficiency review and where we're lucky getting brought in to do what I would consider more interesting and creative public policy making. How many people typically have worked for your enterprise? It's varied over time. At one point, I had, I think, 14 people on payroll. That was not good for me because I was the only person who was willing to do business development, basically. And I can't pay for 14 people's children's private school educations, which is kind of what it was coming down to. I was traveling 22 days a month, and it was it was grueling. I uh, shifted to a different model where you know I I now try to maintain a, a small staff of three or four full-time employees and then use consultants when I need them for larger projects. Yep, I'm familiar with that. <laughs> I think a lot of small business people are. Yeah. What did you like and not like about running that or what do you like and not, and not like about it? Um well, there's two things. There's the substance of the business, which we can get into, which is, you know, public policy making itself. And then there's the the job of running a small business. And, you know, I, I could be running a dry cleaners as much as running a public policy consulting firm a lot of the time. The business aspects consume a, a huge amount of time. I I actually like the business development parts of it, at least when we're doing, you know, what you could call retail development, the kind of wholesale business development where we're responding to RFPs, requests for proposals. Well, that's just, you know, a lot of proposal writing. It's not not all that exciting. But particularly in the early days more than now, I would get out and meet with governors and their staffs and agency heads and mayors and talk about what are the issues that are confronting them. You do enough of being a salesman, you you get to know the rhythm of these things. I could tell in the first five minutes when I sat down with somebody whether I was going to wind up getting business with them or not. There's this pattern that was always followed regardless. I learned to do a pretty quick pitch on how I could help somebody and why, and I would stop. And if they were going to hire us, there would be a pause. There wouldn't be a pause if they weren't going to hire us. The person would look at me like, I don't know why I need your help. I know everything there is to know. Why would I possibly hire anybody else? Which was about two thirds in my experience, two two thirds of the average agency head would think I don't need any outside help. Now, one third of them, they would pause and inhale and they would look down at their desk. And it was always the same thing. They would look down, 
be very thoughtful for a second. And then they would look up and it was verbatim the same statement every time, including starting with the words, you know, it was always, you know, I can think of three things right now that I could use your help on. And it was always three. It wasn't five. It wasn't one. It was always three. And they would tell me their, their three biggest problems that they weren't solving. And one of them was something that I would find uninteresting. And two of them were pretty nifty. And we'd focus on those. And at that point, it became an interesting conversation about, about a public policy issue. Sometimes something that was beyond my frame of reference, but I could analogize to something else and come up with creative solutions. And we'd have an interesting conversation with somebody who really cared about making a difference. And that was really neat. But you know, I had a hard time convincing anybody else that that's what business development consisted of. To them, it was, you know, you're going in and begging for money. And, you know, to me, if you're talking about money, A, you're, you're, you're not having a very interesting conversation and B, you're not making a sale. A, a good business development conversation is tell me your problems. Let me see how I can help you. If your thing is public policy and that's the conversation that you're having, you know, that's an interesting conversation. So I actually enjoyed that part of it. What I did not enjoy is, you know, the amount of forms you need to fill out. I mean, you know, anybody who's had a small business will tell you that everything that Republicans say about government is correct. You know, it's annoying, it's invasive, it takes up lots of time, it's really inefficient. And that's why I've spent a lot of time working on trying try to make governments more efficient. Because if you've ever been on the receiving end of government, you know all the ways in which it's problematic. And as a small business person, you know, it's all of that and then some. It's not just the government. The number of times I've had to call up our uh, workers' comp insurer or some other insurance company to deal with a, a problem or deal with our payroll company over something. The, the things that go wrong, you know, it's not just that government messes things up. Other businesses mess things up and you spend a lot of time dealing with what are essentially uninteresting problems that aren't making a difference in anybody's life but yours and in a negative way. And as a business owner, you spend a lot of time doing that. So, you know, I found that very frustrating. I'm familiar with a lot of those headaches of running a business. I've run a couple. I think for someone like you who had a purchase in the much more intellectual world in some ways of constitutional law and being in governor's offices, at least your business is highly connected to that by your choice, right? But did did you feel like it in general over time put you doing things that were like a good fit for your capabilities and preferences, or did you feel dragged down by it? Like, where were you on that spectrum of like, this is the right career as you were running this? Well, um, I, I felt like things were moving in the right direction originally. I never quite enjoyed the, the, you know, the things we were just talking about, about the uh, difficulties of running a small business. Although for the first several years, I I found it interesting because it was something I didn't have experience in and I had to learn how to run a business. And I made lots and lots of mistakes and learned a lot from it. I've always said I got the most expensive MBA in world history. I did find that interesting. Although you probably got paid to get your MBA in a certain sense, right? Um. If I broke even, I was probably doing well. I didn't know how to run a business, and I, I did a lot of things wrong. Now, I, I think I'm doing a lot of things better in that regard now. But 
I learned a lot of painful lessons that if I paid for a, du- a tuition in business school, I probably could have learned more. I don't know if they teach the kinds of lessons that we have to learn by doing, but maybe some of them. Uh, maybe, maybe not. All I, all I know is there was, there was a price for my mistakes and I learned from them. And that was interesting. But, you know, I was doing things I never thought that I would do. And I, you know, and I did find interesting on, on my many, many plane flights, I would uh, read a lot of uh, business books on, uh, uh, you know, how you do sales on how you structure a business on business financing, uh, things that I really didn't have any interest in, but had to take an interest in. There was one thing in particular that struck me that that I think is a, a, a worthwhile story for, for all people who go into business. It was actually in an airline magazine. It's made a deep impression on me. There was a, a interview I happened to see on a flight one time about somebody who was an early internet pioneer. I forget who it was, but basically he was credited with being the guy who who thought up email and wrote the program to send a message that was basically a ping from one computer to another computer that became the basis for for everything. You know, he was working in a government lab at the time, continued to work in a government lab for his entire career. And at one point, there was a young guy on the team. I think it was Larry Ellison, but it was you know somebody who went on to be a huge internet gazillionaire. Um, but at the time, it was like a twenty-six-year-old kid, and who saw that this was going to be the thing of the future, and uh, got everybody else who worked on the team to say, "Yeah, you know, we need to go out and start a business, and we're going to get rich and famous doing this." and they came to this guy who was the head guy, who was the, the genius who thought it all up and said, you know, we think this is the future. We're going to get rich doing this. We want you to come be the head of this company because you're the guy who thought it up. You're the brains. And he he said no. He had no interest in doing that. He wanted to continue just doing what he was doing. And so everybody else went out, started this business. This 26-year-old kid becomes Larry Ellison, whoever it is. And you know, here this guy is at the end of his career being interviewed by the Delta Flight magazine. He's like a GS9 or something, still working for the government. Was that Ray Tomlinson? Do you know if that's the name? I, I, I don't recall. I didn't know enough about the internet at the time to know who all the greats were. So I don't, I don't remember who the, who this article was about. You can tell through this whole interview that the interviewer is just dying to ask this guy, you turned down Larry Ellison's offer. He went off and made billions of dollars and you're making $60,000 a year as a government employee. Don't you regret that? (laughs) He finally, in the course of the interview, not quite in those words, ask the question, you know, and it's, don't you envy Larry Ellison or whoever the, the, the kid was. And you can, you can see on the page of the magazine that the guy is totally befuddled by the question. It's not part of his thinking at all. It's not part of his thinking at all. And the answer has always stayed with me. He says, no, not at all. He'll never write another line of code in his life. <laughs> and, you know, this guy I, might have been the smarter guy. You don't always need a billion dollars. You might need to have the job that fits you. Yeah, I think about that all all the time when I was, you know, every time that I'm on the phone hassling with uh, the workers comp insurer about something <laughs> or other, you know, what I'm thinking is, 
I'm never going to write another line of code, so to speak, in my life. I hire people who do what I started the business to do yes. while I'm doing this, this junk. Um, you know, and that's, I think, the, the frustration of a, of a small business person is working your way back to doing what you started the business to do which I think I've done more of in recent years. But, you know, that was the struggle for a long time. Now, I read a, an email newsletter that you wrote about having sold this business to a bit of a shyster, uh, or more than a bit of, and having not gotten paid uh, fully for it and having a long lawsuit and having to take it back and rebuild it. Can you tell that story a bit? Uh, sure. Obviously not a, not a pleasant story, although I guess with a, a somewhat pleasant ending. But part of it is that uh, you alluded to this a bit earlier in asking me about what I enjoyed and didn't enjoy about the business. There came a time, and I suppose we'll circle back and talk about this some, where I found that um, working with uh, governments and elected officials was not as rewarding as I thought it was or found it to be 10, 15 years earlier. And I started thinking about trying to find a way to do something that I would find more rewarding and more meaningful. And that involved, as a first step, selling the business, or perhaps as a first step, figuring out what it was that I wanted to do next, uh, and then selling the business. But it, in any event, it came time uh, several years ago, around 2015, I got serious about this, talked to a number of other consulting firms. And eventually, in early 2016, I sold the business to a firm that did different but related sort of work so that there was a, I felt a good synergy of what we could build from that. And the basic idea was that it was going to get me out of spending one day a week doing public policy and five days a week hassling with the workers' comp insurer and all those things that you do because I no longer would own the business. How did you find this particular firm? I had come across them years before. They'd been recommended to me for you know some related work on something that we were doing. Um, and you know, from what I could tell, I mean, there were a lot of good people at the firm. They did a lot of good work, and they did for a number of years. It just turns out that the, the guy who was the 100% owner of the firm uh, wound up getting himself in some financial trouble and didn't have the ethics one might want somebody to have when they found themselves in trouble. And I wound up on the receiving end of that, not not quite knowing that. So, you know, I sold the sold the business to this other firm in 2016 and things went swimmingly for about a year and a half. Things worked out the way that I wanted to. I was no longer overseeing a business so I could spend more time actually doing the writing of the code, the doing the substantive work and doing the other things I wanted to do, which was I have taught a lot of public policy. I got to be doing a lot more of that. I got to do a lot more writing. I was writing pretty regularly then for The Atlantic and for U.S. News and World Report, as well as, you know, one-offs here and there for other publications. But I was pretty much writing a, uh, a, a piece of interest to me every week or two for one of those major publications. I was in the early stages of, of starting what I wanted to start which was uh, this um, vision of what a uh, government of the future might look like. As an adjunct to that, it started uh, a nonprofit that uh, has held a series of conferences at uh, Brown and at Columbia University on the future of government and how technology was changing the world and what that might mean for uh, doing things to um, make a positive contribution as the world changes. You know, things were going kind of the way I wanted. In 
August of 2017, so about 18 months after the sale, the monthly payments for the sale stopped. It was represented to me at the time as a minor cash flow problem. Having run a small business, I can understand minor cash flow problems, so I didn't think much of it at the time until couple months later, uh, right after New Year's Day on a weekend, two of my employees called me up on a Sunday rather frantic and wanted to talk. So I said, sure. And it turns out that they had checked the balances in their 401k accounts and they were zero. The 401ks had been wiped. The owner had taken all the money. Um, I realized at that point this was a little more serious than a temporary cash flow problem. We had a uh, heart-to-heart talk that did not go well. My basic view was whatever else you do, you have to give these employees back their money. I mean, these were people who I had brought with me to the firm who depended on me. Uh, I mean, one of my conditions of selling the business was that they had to take my employees. I, I care about these people and I wanted to look after them. And they had wound up, they were relatively young, so their retirements were far off, but still, this was what they planned on being their nest eggs and then been cleaned out. And I said to the guy, we can renegotiate the deal with me. Uh, I'm willing to accept just about any terms on this, but you need to give the you need to give the employees back the 401k money and you need to do it now. He basically told me to go to hell. He'd do it when he felt like it. He wasn't going to pay me what I was owed. And I could either accept that and take the business back or he was going to shut it down. So I sued. That resulted in about two years of litigation. We reached a settlement. He violated every term of the settlement agreement. I had to reinstitute the litigation. I finally got a very large federal court judgment out of this for everything that he owed me, plus the legal fees. He then, literally 10 minutes before the judgment would have taken effect, sold off all the company's assets and uh, ran off with everything. I had to uh, get another law firm to pursue collection efforts, which I was told were probably going to be unsuccessful because somebody who's determined not to pay you will wind up never paying you and doing similar sorts of things with, you know, shell corporations and so forth. But anyway, you know, we, we brought suit to collect on the judgment. And uh, the sheriff returned the service of papers saying, I can't do it. He's in hospice. He's dying. I'm not going to serve the guy. And he died two days later. I'm probably never going to see any of that again. I wound up with a business that was moribund and, uh, you know, more or less all of my liquid assets wiped out and my income were wiped out because the business had ceased to exist. So I had to rebuild it. Could I ask you just a question at that point? So, I mean, first of all, sorry that happened to you. That's just like a, that's a doozy. I've heard some tales, but that's a, that's right up there. Do you have any advice coming out of that to other entrepreneurs about like if they're thinking of selling their business about the due diligence or other decision making or I don't anything that comes out of that that you think would be helpful to someone else to avoid circumstances like that that's well one one is get cash on the barrel head if you can I have kind of a rule in politics and government that I I violated in my business, which I paid a price for, which is essentially never agree to a deal where you have to perform first. Uh, because, I mean, I think in politics, the odds are pretty good that uh, if you do your half first, you're never going to see the other guy's half. It really didn't occur to me naively, I suppose, as a lawyer, that uh, the same would hold true in, in business, especially because, you know, I had enforceable business 
documents. And I, in fact, prevailed in court. The attorney, sheet, attorney fee shifting provision in the sale agreement was the one and only thing that I objected to and that the, the buyer insisted on because I assumed he was the wealthier party. If we ever wound up in a lawsuit where we were suing, he would probably be suing me and he would have more resources. And I tried to resist this provision that he wanted in the sale agreement that the loser would have to pay the attorney's fees. He refused to take that out. It was the only term of mine he didn't agree to. Uh, and, you know, as, as luck would have it, uh, I'm glad because it meant that I could afford, or so I thought, to to litigate because ultimately I'm at an airtight case and I would prevail and he would have to pay the legal fees. Now, I thought that that would force an early settlement because it didn't, it didn't make sense to litigate. We were going to wind up between the two of us spending more on lawyers than the amount of money that he owed me at that point. And in fact, that's how it turned out. And I thought he would have the good sense to, to settle. But unbeknownst to me, he had dug himself into such a, a, an economic hole that there was no way he was ever going to pay, basically. And he was not going to settle and he was going to fight to the bitter end. I think ultimately you need to know your buyer as much as the buyer needs to know what, what he's buying. That may be obvious to anybody with more business experience than me, but it was not obvious to me and, until I was on the receiving end of this. I mean, you had had this view of the legal system, the constitutional big theory side, but here you are in a contract case. D did it change your viewpoint on the legal system at all to go through that process or and how so? If so, no, I don't think it changed my view on the legal system. I mean, um, my position was vindicated as it should have been. Uh, it took a while, but by the normal standards of litigation, uh, things moved actually pretty quickly. I mean, I can't complain about the length of time of the litigation, really. I think it went very well. I don't feel ill served by the legal system, I feel ill served by the fact that there are dishonest, disingenuous people in the world. It'd be nice to live in a world where that's not true, but you know, we don't live in such a world. So you pick up, at least you get back your company, even if it is, as you put it, moribund. What do you do then to restart that engine? Um, fortunately, I had a lot of people who were loyal to me and that I'm thankful for. My employees came with me back to this shell of a company because they believed in what we were doing. They believed that I would treat them fairly. They stuck with it as long as they could financially as we slowly rebuilt things. I made a point of taking care of them first because I think that's what you do in a business. And it's the only way to have a business. I mean, I was only going to be rebuilt by having this staff. The first year we made enough to pay everybody except for me, but that was enough to get the, the business up again. I have a lot of former clients who will recommend us because we've done a good job and they're always happy to do so. And that helps. There's a lot of people in the political world who swear by what we've done and made a point of um, seeking out ways to help us and 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 help channel business to us. Then I had another stroke of luck, so to speak, if one considers this luck. I was basically staring at the wall here when the pandemic hit. I was going to have to suck it up and work 
18 hours a day, seven days a week to have any chance of rebuilding this business, basically not go anywhere, have any fun, see anybody, do anything except work the entire time, which was a pretty unappealing prospect. And the pandemic came along as well. That was pretty, pretty much what I was going to have to do anyway. So uh, I had a, a very, very grim year, uh, but I was going to have a grim year anyway. I didn't, I didn't go anywhere. I didn't do anything but work, but you know, I did what I had to do. And, you know, we got the business up to, uh, you know, around a third or a half of its former volume in the first year. Got a couple of contracts in that were enough to reestablish that we were moving forward and doing good work. And uh, then there was one contract we got with Los Angeles County that, that it was the kind of work I really liked. It was very, very interesting stuff it was to, to redesign their welfare to work system to make it work better. And then the pandemic hit and they had to cancel the contract halfway through because, you know, the revenues dropped. We finished it anyway. I mean, we did twice as much work as what we were paid for because, you know, I mean, A, that's kind of our work ethic to begin with. And B, well, there wasn't really anything else to do. We might as well finish the project. And we did. And we finished it at the level that the county deserved. I think that has made an, an undyingly loyal um, uh, uh, recommender out of the person who oversaw the contract for the county. And we also produced, you know, it was like a 500-page report on how to reform the welfare-to-work system in L.A., uh, I feel good about the work we did and allowed us to say that we're back. Uh, we're struggling, but we're back. And the next year I got lucky in that there, you know, when we won a major contract and we had the biggest grossing year we'd ever had. I had also figured out, as I said before, I learned, I, I, I may be a slow learner, but I learned and I, I learned from all of this how to run the business better. I ran it for a profit. I uh, got by far the highest profit margin I've ever had. That all went to pay off the lawyers, but it paid off the lawyers. So we had a pretty good uh, 2021 and you know now we're back at work in 2022. I want to circle back as you suggested I might to the reason that you decided to sell. And because now it feels like okay, you had a bunch of other aspirations and things that you started doing that were important to you. You had to put them I assume mostly on hold to do this kind of 18-hour work day to bring the business back. What's happening with the other projects that you want and how are you dealing with sort of that reality of putting things on hold for a bit? Well, I mean, it's been frustrating to me because, you know, the, the, the other things are things I, I do want to do. Now, I, I have continued teaching on and off over the last couple of years. I've, I've continued writing not as much as I would like to. Although I did get an opportunity to write kind of my, my magnum opus of sorts. I've got a new piece out in the Hedgehog Review, which I recommend that everybody go read. What is the Hedgehog Review? I had not heard of it. I think it's the, the best journal out there these days. It's published by the Center for it's like Intensive Studies in Culture, an academic center at the University of Virginia. Institute for Advanced Studies in Culture. Yes, Institute for Advanced Studies in Culture. Published this journal called the Hedgehog Journal, which you know comes out of a um, Isaiah Berlin essay called the the Fox and the Hedgehog, which is derived from an Aesop's fable, um, which is essentially that the, the fox knows many things, the hedgehog knows one thing very well, 
And the reason why I think they adopted that name is because each issue focuses rather intensely on a particular subject, and they have a lot of essays around that subject. So the the current issue is the uses and abuses of history. My piece isn't actually part of that series, but is another article that they they jammed in there because they liked it, and they actually you know asked me to write this, which kind of summarizes all of the 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 thinking and work I've been doing over the last fifteen years on where we're headed politically, why we're in the morass we're in these days, and where we're going as a result of that, which to me has been driven uh, a lot by technological change. I wrote the piece on that recently, which took me the better part of a year because it's an extremely long piece. But so, yes, I have gotten to do some of the writing and teaching that I like doing. This Greater Good initiative that I got started uh, has been hamstrung some by the uh, the pandemic. We couldn't do annual conferences and some of the other things we were doing because of the the pandemic restrictions. But I'm hoping that we'll uh, have the conference restarted in February of this year. Besides this annual conference we've had at Columbia with a lot of major government and technology uh, and academic thinkers. Um, just before the pandemic, we were starting a series of policy hackathons around the country for just, you know, everyday Americans to get involved in dealing with the problems facing the country and developing solutions from the grassroots up, which I think will actually produce much better results than waiting on Congress to do it. Uh, so I want to get back to having these citizen hackathons around the country. As an offshoot of that, we've recently started a series of, of quiet discussions that I'm hoping we can grow into something more between people who are on the hardcore right and people on the left trying to find common ground, people who you wouldn't think would normally be talking to each other, but are talking to each other because we're all concerned about saving the Republican democracy, despite our ideological differences. So there are things around that, around making the country work better on trying to create a better future, regardless of ideology, that this greater good initiative that I started has been trying to work on. And I was able to devote some time to that pre-business collapse and pre-pandemic. And I've got some more of that starting up now, but for the last two or three years, it's really been just kind of a fight for survival on the business front. How much further do you think it, you have to go before the business is in a place where you could devote the amount of time you want to, to other activities? Could be a day, could be years. I don't know. Depends on the vagaries of my client base to some degree. Now, you know, I think things have gotten lately to the point that I am now starting to make initial steps in the direction that I just talked about. And I've gotten this kind of cross ideological spectrum thing going in its early stages. We've had an initial meeting on that and are planning on having a another one soon. I'm uh, starting to focus on putting this uh, conference together for February. The hedgehog piece is really intended in a lot of ways as the kind of blueprint for wh where I want the discussions at the annual conferences going from here on out. So, you know, I'm starting to segue back into the things where I feel like I can make more of a difference. I've got some things in the works that are potentially very large contracts for the consulting business that, you know, for all I know, I've got a little red dot here telling me that I got some emails while we've been talking. One of them could be one saying, hey, we're ready to go. Let's talk. Or that may not show up for the rest of my life. I don't know. But I'm working on getting the business to where it can and should be so that I can be paying my attention to these other things. And we're getting there. The life goes on. I mean, one of the lines in that Hedgehog Review article 
that couldn't help but catch my attention was that you doubt democracy will survive, at least in the sort of form that is very related to territory, to the geographic rule of an area because of technology transitions and because of the, the disaggregating qualities of kind of the information revolution. And could you kind of piece together for me, when I worry about democracy right now, I worry about sort of the rise of re-rise of authoritarianism here and around the world, that model being more attractive to people and to rulers. But what, what do you mean by that? And what do you think we're facing? And what do you think we should do? Small question. Yeah, I was going to say that's that's a pretty large set of things. Uh, well, first of all, read the article and get the full the full viewpoint on this. There's a couple of aspects of that 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 you know that I want to explain. I do think that there's a future for democracy, but I think we need to think about democracy differently than how I think people think about it. And that's one of the points of the piece and of the statement that you that you read. We tend to think of democracy as a certain set of processes for making decisions, or a certain set of political institutions. But the word democratic can be applied in a lot of other contexts, and it has been and and should be. Um, for for one thing, I mean, you can think of a lot uh, of a much more democratic kind of economy. And one of the arguments I've made for for a long time, which a lot of people scoff at, because you know they see the the rise of of dictators everywhere, and so they think, oh, we're we're living in an age of rising authoritarianism. I've been arguing that I think we're we're actually living in an age of increasing democracy, small d sense. I think those things are in constant. A constant tug of war. And, you know, hopefully the right side will win out. But let's look at it in an economic arena before we talk about it in the political arena. You can look at what's currently going on and saying, uh, say, look at all the, the concentration of industry, particularly in the IT world. Uh, look at surveillance capitalism and how we're losing all of our freedoms to Mark Zuckerberg, say, this is really horrible. But in, in other ways, the technologies are democratizing things in a way beyond anything that could have been imagined in the human past. People can, can design and print and you know, create their own objects, let alone their, their own thoughts. You know, I mean, look at you here. You're, you've got a, a podcast, which presumably hundreds of millions of people listen to. Um, yes, you know, uh, over hundreds of millions. I, I, probably the whole world. In the past, you had three television networks that could do that, and then that was it. But now uh, somebody can sit at home and do broadcasting, thanks to Facebook Live, is essentially you know live broadcasting. Anybody can create their own music studio at home with a 100-piece orchestra recording their own music. People, people can do uh, all kinds of things, print their own books, whatever, that used to have to be done by large corporations. And as I talk about in the piece, I think that we're you know pretty close to the point where you can create your own reality and your own world, and that a lot of that has to do with, with where we're at politically now. If if you want to believe that the election was stolen by Joe Biden, that Donald Trump is the rightful president of the United States, and that by uh, invading the Capitol, you are sticking up for democracy, you, you are in a position to believe that and act on that just as much as people who believe the exact opposite. And the, the, the extent to which one can create one's own reality and live in that reality 
is, uh, I mean, truly mind-boggling. And that has all kinds of ramifications for where we're going as a society, which is the thing that concerns me is the total undermining of any sort of shared truth or or authority in the the more positive sense of of the world of the word, and that's going to cause us difficulty coordinating as a society as we must. I mean, ultimately, we all do live in the same place more or less, and have to come to some terms of what the same reality is. But we're we're living in a golden age in some ways, in which you can get everything you want anytime you want, anywhere you want, from anywhere you want, and that's reflected in our politics as well. So, you know, if you think of democracy more expansively, we are living in a democratic age. Now, you know, are there people who want authoritarianism? Yes. I think that they're the authoritarians. I mean, they're the people who benefit from that, the people who are uh, who are holding the power. I don't think most people, d- despite widespread perception, I don't think that most people actually want authoritarian government. They want democracy, at least for themselves. And the problem is working that out so that we can have democracy for ourselves while letting other people have what they want in their lives. But I think that the the technologies that have brought us here also give us the ability to solve that dilemma and to live in a way that that we can make our own choices. Um, then I just want to say one thing to wrap that up. When you know I say that we're not going to have, that I don't think democracy is as we currently think of it will survive. Um, but I think democracy in other senses will survive, and we're seeing that already. If you want to have a a certain life and a certain political structure, you can move to California, as millions of people have. You know, one of the the data journalist types ran a calculation recently on taking the the Kansas abortion referendum and projecting what that would be in other states. And you come up with a figure of basically 75% of Californians would vote for the pro-choice position. So, you know, if if that's your worldview, you can move to California and virtually everybody shares the same point of view. If you look at the precinct by precinct election maps from 2016 or 2020, there are like two precincts. I mean, precincts where you're talking, uh, let's get down to a level of like 500 people. There are two precincts in the entire San Francisco Bay Area that Trump carried. There's, you know, so there's essentially no place in you know, this 10 million person or, area. Or any precinct in rural Alabama. Right. Yeah, you get yeah. the same the same uh, yeah. elsewhere. If, you know, if you have a different point of view, you can move to Oklahoma or Texas. And and basically Americans already have, you know, there's this the big sort concept. You can say that our, our elections are ceasing to matter, but they're ceasing to matter because people have made, people have chosen their government before the election. They've, they've chosen to live, for the most part, where it delivers various things they want in life, including the government and values that they want. So, you know, in a sense, uh, our elections may not matter, but we have a very democratic society in that sense. So you don't need political structures to have a democracy. I think most people do want to have a world that's that's democratic in the sense that they can self-determine what their life consists of. And most people are willing to concede that most other people should get to do that, too. So I'm more worried about how we get from here to there than I am about that we're headed to some awful dark age where everybody wants authoritarianism, because I don't think people do. Well, sometimes it's provided for them against their wishes, which is the scary thing, right? Yes. Yeah. Is there a question that I should have asked you that I didn't? 
No, I don't think so for your purposes. I mean, you were, you're kind of interested in the, the life story and so forth. We could spend the next several hours because I've done these sorts of interviews talking about what we were just talking about and what was in the hedgehog piece and so forth. I think we've covered everything you'd want to cover about me and my life and more than anybody else is going to want to hear. Well, I suspect a few people will want to hear it, and I was glad to hear it. Well, there is my wife, but I'm not sure I'm not sure anybody else is going to want to hear it. What does your wife do? Well, she, my wife does whatever she'd like to do. She's fairly similar to me in terms of what she wants. We, we actually met um, because she was the uh, Secretary of Aging for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania under Bob Casey. When I became Chief of Staff to Single, we both agreed that the that he should have a female running mate and that by far the best choice for that was this uh, Linda Rhodes, who was the secretary of aging. She was bright, articulate and wildly popular with the elderly who are, you know, make up an exceptionally large percentage of the population in Pennsylvania. And I called Linda up, I barely knew, asked her to go to lunch and I asked her to run for lieutenant governor with my boss. And she literally laughed in my face. There were people who wanted her to run for governor, including most of the people in the governor's office. And they had been trying to recruit her to run. Other people had wanted her to run for the U.S. Senate a couple of years earlier, and she had decided not to because she had young kids. She said, why, why would I want to run for lieutenant governor when there are people who want me to be governor? But I, I can be kind of persistent, and I kept after her, and we kept having lunch every couple of weeks. When Mark became acting governor, we started having lunch more frequently because she was very close to Governor Casey's people, and particularly the governor. And the acting governor's situation is somewhat fraught. Casey was purportedly coming back every day for six and a half months, and Casey's chief of staff and I had frequent meetings where we use an analogy of your friend says, I'm going to go away for a week. Can you look after my apartment? And then he doesn't come back for six months. At what point can you move the coffee table a little bit? The press was dying to write that we were trying to stage a coup and push Bob Casey out. The net result of all that was we had a lot of lunches and talked about politics and state government. And to my surprise, she asked me out on a date. Um, so uh, we wound up getting married, and uh, she's done a lot of consulting with me. I mean, she's really a, an expert on health care and aging issues and education, and she does her own thing a lot, and she, she works with me a lot. Well, congratulations on that. That sounds like a great way to meet an interesting person. Anything else you want to say? No, I think we've covered more than enough. <laughs> okay. Thanks much. That was Eric. He is at ericschnurrer.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.